0: Oscar is a wonderful apologist, and uh, he, uh, he wrote many books that influenced me greatly when I was a young married man, The Dust of Death, and all sorts of uh, stories like that. He's written one recently, uh, Impossible People, and basically he's talking about the fact that Christians in the world today are impossible people if they're real people. If they're real Christians, they're impossible. The, the world can't handle it. It's just too tough. Well, in this book, he tells a wonderful story of the fact that he was called to Manila to a Lausanne conference follow-up. And he was one of the speakers, and he was asked to speak for 17 minutes on mission and modernity. In other words, modernism with the latest sort of academic title, modernity. He said, Well, it's hard to speak on that kind of topic for 17 minutes and get anywhere at all. But he said, I tried. And uh, at the end of it, a woman came up to me and she said, I-, I don't really have, I don't really have much good hearing. And I can't really understand half the things you were saying. But it did surprise me they were asking for a man to speak about mission and maternity. <laughs> So I I felt a bit better having read that because, you know, we can all get confused by the preachers. (laughs) The truth is in Jesus. We read last week that wonderful statement in John chapter 1, and I've just asked you to turn to it. Let's read it together. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The book of John is the story of the glory of the Son, revealing the glory of the Father through the grace of God. And we will come back to that theme. Remember it. The grace of God leads us to understand the glory of Jesus who leads us to understand the glory of the Father. When we talk about truth in the church, we're talking a whole different paradigm, a whole different dimension, a whole different level to what church, what the world talks about in truth. So these were the words we quoted last week at the beginning. It's where we start and finish today. The Bible declares the truth is in Jesus and says that Jesus declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You say, we heard that last week. Hear it again. Hear it again. Keep hearing it. I am the way, the truth, the life. Keep hearing it. Because the world will tend to push you away from thinking that you need to hear it again. I tell you, at my age, I need to hear it constantly. We either believe the Bible or we don't. We either trust Jesus or we lose the only way to God. The Bible says we have. We have to find salvation in this floundering world and eternal life out of otherwise inescapable, everlasting destruction through the way, the truth, and the life. On Monday last week, after speaking to you on Sunday, I received a copy of the annual report of the Tertiary Students Christian Fellowship, TSCF. It's the evangelical work among tertiary students, which is part of a worldwide fellowship of uh, evangelical students. And Judge Andrew Beecroft, well known to Simon and others here, now children's commissioner, is the chairman of TSCF. And Nigel Pollock, also known to Simon very well through his work in El Rancho and elsewhere, is the national director. And both both are outstanding men of God. And I commend any tertiary student here to join and belong to Tertiary Student Christian Fellowship, the way I see it going today. Well, anyway, Nigel Pollock wrote, as the National Director should, the introduction to the annual report. You're going to have an annual meeting today. See, they all have it. You have to put up. I'm glad yours is 15 minutes. But it was an astounding piece that Nigel wrote at the start of the annual report, and I want to share it partly with you. He starts with this quote from Erasmus, one of the philosophers in the 16th century. In the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. Isn't that a beautiful quote? In the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. Nigel stated, when people cannot see for themselves, they will follow whoever has a little light A little sight, a little understanding. We live in an age when one-eyed kings rule the earth. The one-eyed kings have a limited field of vision, only see one perspective, have a one-dimensional view, and they love the power and attention they get from the blind. They produce polarized societies where single issues often dominate and alternatives to their own point of view are demonized. And dismissed. He goes on to point out that this single-eyed view accounts for the rise of nationalism. Make America great again. Put Australia first. Brexit. And it also accounts for the rejection of any influence of religion and honest debate. If you go into any sector of the world today, people say, the first thing, don't talk to me about religion. So we cut out religion from honest debate while we stand aghast at the outpouring of grief, at the terrorism of religious ideas that stops public debate about faith and freedom. I was astounded that Monday morning because, to be honest with you folk, I went home on Sunday afternoon and Sunday evening was bad news for me. I felt i bored you young people. I thought I'd been too much of a lecturer. I cried out to God for mercy. Then my wife told me how hopeless I was. That didn't help. <laughs> she said, Boy, you can be really boring. That's the most boring you've ever been. I tell you, I took a while to get to sleep that night. And I was feeling, Well, Lord, I thought it was what you wanted. And you know, in the mail, I opened the mail, there's only one letter in the mail, it's the annual report from TSCF. And I read Nigel Pollock, I thought I was reading myself. And I thought, He's. Pitching my material. So i got hold of him. And I said, come on, man. What's going on? We had a good old chat. But Nigel points out to the rise of consensus over conviction. So long as everybody believes it, I feel comfortable. If I'm convicted another way, uh-huh, that puts me outside the crowd. Don't feel comfortable. He considers the correlation between extremism and populism. He says, just because something is popular doesn't make it right. Jesus made it clear that in the last days people would gather around them, people with itching ears, longing to hear. With regard to fake news, Nigel made this coming. If you don't read the newspaper, you're uninformed. If you do read it, you're misinformed. Yes. <laughs> so we live in the era of post-truth, as I said. One of the effects of so much information being available in our hands is the instant something happens anywhere in the world. People know it. But the big thing is, journalists today want to be first to tell, and not truth to tell. News isn't a matter nowadays of how true it is, but how simply immediate it is. We have itching ears. And may I say to you as a Christian here today, or as a non-believer even, if you are simply going for a popular preacher, watch it. We have popular preachers all over the world today. Your TV is full of it. Your radio is full of it. And so on. You get somebody like Alex stand up here this morning, profoundly speak to you. That's reality. Actually, it was popular for me too. But it wasn't because it was popular, it was because it was profound. As we saw from the four blind men last week trying to describe an elephant, each reported an aspect of truth which on its own was not the real truth or the whole story. In despair, the world has moved to say we no longer need to seek Truth is an objective reality. We simply need to propose what we see is real for us. We're living in post-truth. But as we said last week, truth is not a person. There is only one king who sees with total clarity and who opens the eyes of the blind. He, The, the one-eyed kings must support the blindness of the blind. Now you think of our society... We are constantly supporting the blind at a physical level, at an emotional level, at a mental level, anywhere. But don't go to the spiritual. Because there you may disclose the fact that their blindness is redeemable, fixable, healable. And Jesus didn't come to simply surround these blind people with his care and his love because they're so blind. He came and he said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Not just to hand out stuff to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Not just to put my arm around them. He sent me to preach deliverance to the captives. Mm. And recovery of sight to the blind. That's our God. Amen. That's Jesus. That's the true stater of truth. And then he went on to say, and to set at liberty those who are bruised to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. You see, all he did there led to one thing. There is a day that is acceptable to God. Are you ready for it? This is the day of salvation, God says. And Jesus came and did all that good stuff, but it was all for one thing, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. What is this gospel that Jesus preached? Well, first of all, it's the glad tidings, the good news of the kingdom of God, soon to be set up. It's interesting to me that the, the scientists constantly talk about millions and billions of years. Paul talks about soon. And it's interesting because... We are quite happy to look at millions of years. If we don't realize how narrow the span is to the Lord's return. He's going to bring in the one enduring kingdom. You know, in the fourth century, the Roman Empire was finally overrun not by the barbarians, but by Christianity. We just don't seize that enough today. Oh, I wish I could spend the next week talking to you about how things have changed since the fourth century and how God has been leading. But now, it's interesting. Christianity could survive the overrun of barbarism that occurred in that age. Rome couldn't. The greatest nation that existed on earth to that day couldn't survive barbarism. But Christianity could. Grab that. Understand it. It was a societal change which was so deep because it came from the heart. Now what's happening today? The state today is ignoring Christianity and being overrun by barbarism. You get the difference? And, you know, we're living an age right now where Osgonir says we are at the tipping point. We are actually living the age of return to barbarism without Christ, without the truth, without Christianity. People, we're in a serious time. The West is dying as a culture. Hmm. Get it straight. It is dying as a culture. The terrorism that's happening right across the West is simply the reintroduction of barbarism. Why? Because there's nothing to withstand it. Politics can't withstand it. Good ideas can't withstand it. Only the strength of what God puts in the heart of individuals and churches and nations can we withstand that barbarism. And you will never see terrorism overcome by all the devices that are being put into place politically. The gospel is also the good news about Jesus the Messiah who's the founder of this kingdom. No other religion offers that. The, the, the gospel proclaimed after the death of Christ became also the preaching about Jesus Christ as the one who suffered death on the cross to gain eternal salvation for people in the kingdom of God. Man, I loved that stuff this morning, Sam, that we were singing. I couldn't believe it. You got up started talking about the kingdom of God. And then we started talking about the bread of life in John 6. It's all coming up today. I thought... I don't, they don't need me to preach. They've done it all. Isn't it wonderful how when God works in a fellowship like this, you can't do that politically, you can't do it organizationally, you can't do it administratively. It's the work of the Spirit of God. You live truth this morning. He brought a whole bunch of people in here thinking the same stuff. I mean, that really impresses me. It doesn't happen in a business like that for me. Gospel is the preaching that Christ is restored to life and exalted. At the right hand of God. No other religious teacher has ever done that. The gospel is the proclaiming and preaching that Christ will return from heaven and majesty to be declared and received on earth as the king of the kingdom of God. There is a kingdom. You're part of it. I'm sorry, but Donald Trump's administration, not necessarily. I don't care near any man, but I'm simply saying we cannot look to politics. Stop it. It's a waste of time. Look to the king. His kingdom is supreme. Barbarism has no interest to him. He's already overcome it. I have overcome the world, you see it. Churches today all over the world are proclaiming another gospel. Paul wrote the embarrassingly corrupted church at Corinth. You'll read it in 2 Corinthians 11, 3 and 4. He said to these these people who had all sorts of problems in their church, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. I'm worried about that, he says. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if we receive a different spirit from the one we received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you received. Pause. What's he going to say? He says, you put up with it readily enough. Oh, boy. He's writing to a corrupt church. The biggest corruption they had was they put up with nonsense. Right. Church, stand true on the word of God. When somebody is too extreme about belief in the word of God, praise God. When somebody comes along and says, but you're just making the Bible say stuff it doesn't mean. Well, hang on, what am I saying it doesn't mean? That's what it says. Let's be true to the Bible. Let's start there. Don't believe other stuff too readily. Oh, it's a worry. The gospel is not about feel good. It's not about prosperity. It's not about success. It's not about getting saved and satisfied. It's not about a Jesus who is simply a good man. It's not about a God who doesn't care about sin and justice and righteousness and redemption and eternal consequences. Paul defines what it is. But I do not account my life of any value nor precious to myself, he says in Acts 20. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I've received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of what? The grace of God. That's what it's all about. Don't tell me about all this other stuff which itches my ears, makes me think. But isn't the reality of the fact that God's grace is all I need? Where did we are to declare the gospel of God's grace. Keep on declaring it. When people get bored, keep on declaring it again. Paul also described it as the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. He also called it the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Isn't that a beautiful word in 1 Timothy 1? So the gospel is the good news about the grace of God. The gospel is the good news about the glory of Christ. And the gospel is the good news about the glory of the blessed God. God's grace leads to knowing the glory of Christ. Leads to knowing the glory of God. What a sequence. It's a beautiful sequence. And if you think about it, it is the trinity expressed in action. It is the glory, the story of God's grace. That's the Bible it is leading to knowing the glory of Christ, the Son of God. And it leads to knowing the glory of God. And He is revealing it every day. The Holy Spirit. Truth stands up to scrutiny. We said this last week. I want to explore it a bit more. John 8, verse 31. I would like you to turn with me, Peter, John 8. It's a great chapter and I'll to share it with you. John 8, verse 31. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Go down to verse 40. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Find me one other ideology one other philosophy, one other religion that says anything approaching that. There's not one. Not one. I've told you the truth that came from God. Down to verse 44. You're of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires, he said to these religious people. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. People, there is a Dichotomy here. You either go with the person in your life in whom there is no truth, or you go to the one who says, I am the truth. There is no middle ground. And those who deny the existence of the devil have to do that because they want to deny the reality of the truth. Don't be fooled. When he, that is the devil, speaks, he lies. He speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. What a contrast to Jesus. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. That's typical of the world today. You speak the truth, and they go, eh, uh, nah. hmm. Which one of you convicts me of he says? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? These are astounding statements, and they're aggressively directed at the father of lies, the devil. They are absolutely uncompromising about the fact that Jesus is the truth. The Bible is either true or this is the greatest nonsense ever written, and no one has ever proved that. What the Father of Lies has tried to do is undermine the Christ of God and the person of Jesus Christ, God's own Son. And he did it all the way to the cross of Calvary. So let's examine the 24 hours before Calvary because obviously this was a big issue for the Lord. That he had come as God revealed, incarnate. He's 24 hours left to live. How is he going to live? What's he going to say? What's he going to do? Well, let's examine it. We start 24 hours before the last hours of Jesus' life before death on Calvary, sat in the upper room. We've talked about that today, and Alex led us there. He shared that Passover feast with his disciples. John's Gospel account doesn't contain the details of the Last Supper being introduced by the Lord. Do you realize that? John's Gospel does not have an account of the bread and wine being introduced at the Last Supper. John does not record that introduction of the communion by our Lord. John's Gospel, you see, is the Gospel of the Divine. Picturing Christ as God among us. Matthew the king, Luke the man, Mark the servant, but John, God. And it presents the Lord Jesus Christ as God incarnate above all. It emphasizes the Godhead of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's no point in John telling the story about Christ saying, This do in remembrance of me. Why? How can anyone forget God incarnate? To emphasize the Last Supper call upon us to remember him might imply that we'd missed the whole message of the Gospel of John. This is God. You can't forget him. Now John shows us that Christ is God in so many ways, and most importantly, in chapter 6, if you haven't. I remember, I remember the room I was in it was my in-law's home in Town. And I was beside my bed, just reading John 6, and God revealed finally what it was all about. You touched it so beautifully this morning. The bread of life. I am the bread of life. He took that little boy's loaves and fishes, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and then to the crowd. What a story. It's the demonstration of God among us. How could we forget? On the following day, Jesus gave them the explanation of the bread of heaven. And that's when he said, I am the bread of life. So let's have a look at what John describes of the upper room in the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. Before the crucifixion, if he dares to leave out, as he obviously has, the reference to the Last Supper, the breaking of bread. The disciples were in the upper room. Turn with me to John chapter 13, please. We have to read it together. Some of the most amazing words ever written. I say that a lot, so you just have to take it what it is. The supper had ended, and Jesus had finished his last meal. John chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it round his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus washed his betrayer's feet. That's truth. You want to see Jesus, that's the moment. That broke me. What was he thinking when he washed Judas Iscariot's feet? What was he thinking? And it was immediately after that, Jesus told his disciples that he knew who would betray him. So when that happened, they would believe in Jesus. That's what he said, when you see it actually happen the way I've told you it's going to happen, you should believe in me. That's truth. Jesus used the betrayer to show that Jesus knew all truth. And his disciples should believe in him. No turn of events ever caught Jesus by surprise. That's the essence of God. He knows the end from the beginning. The devil and the demons get surprised. Nothing surprises God. He sees it all and knows it all before it ever happens. After Judas Iscariot had gone, then Jesus started the dialogue with his disciples. Now this is intriguing. Jesus has his last meal in the hours before his cruel death. He knows it. He tells his disciples so they could know it. And he starts a dialogue. And there's a lot to do here, Lord. There's a world to save, Lord. Let's get to it. You've got 24 hours left. You started late at 30. (laughs) But no, Jesus chats with his disciples. 24 hours left and he just had a chat. And if you you, you read the next few chapters, they all get involved. One by one and then the whole lot of them. They all get involved. They just chat with their Lord. John 13. Verse 31, have a look at that. When Judas Iscariot had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. That's the core, that's the beginning of everything that ends up in John chapter 17. Now John chapter 14, can I read this with you please? We have to read it. Verse verse 1 of John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. Remember, in Talbot one time, I was listening to a wonderful preacher called Robert Laidlaw. He was the founder of Farmers. This is going back 60 years, no, more than 60 years. And it was a little wee room where we had a little church meeting in the main street there. And he was talking and he said, you know what science tells us today? There's an the expansion of the universe going on right now. He said, when Jesus said, behold, I go to prepare a place to you, he probably meant exactly what he said. And I never forgot. I thought, that's profound. That's true. And if I go then, you may know the way where I'm going. And Thomas said, "What? we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I want to encourage you ask questions of God. The answers you get will be profound if you ask them sincerely. Thomas could have made an ass himself by asking that question when everybody else was saying, oh, okay." But he asked me a mm. question nobody else dared to ask. Why don't you? God loves that. He'll come to you through the scriptures and he'll give you an answer. He'll come to you through the Holy Spirit and he'll give you an answer. It's profound. Mm. That's truth percolating into your very soul. Yeah. Jesus said, No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Well, Philip encouraged by Thomas went on and said, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you do not speak. I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Then he ends with these words. Look at them. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. One of the reasons the church is in a place where we don't see great works for God is I don't believe that we believe what we've just read. As in John chapter 3 verse 11 where he says truly, truly I say to you we speak what we know and we bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. Church we need to receive the testimony of Jesus. We need to receive the testimony of Jesus every time somebody gets up here. And in, in the audience itself whenever we worship we give testimony to Jesus listen to it. Jesus constantly uses this word truly. It comes from the word amen. We normally use amen at the end of a prayer or a statement, but in that context, of course, we understand it to mean, uh, so it is, so be it, may it be fulfilled. It was a custom which was passed over from the synagogues into Christians' uh, churches and assemblies, that when someone had read or discoursed or offered up a solemn prayer to God, the others all would respond amen and so make the substance of what was uttered their own. Do you know what? I grew up in a church where we said amen. People, I'm going to encourage you, when people pray, say, Amen. Amen. Why are we so Western? that we say, oh, I don't want to do that. I might make a fool of myself. (laughs) Well, how about a few of us start making a fool of ourselves? I remember we grew up in a church where "Hallelujah," praise the Lord, and Amen were regular. Hmm. Yeah, didn't think anything about it. It was just natural. You know, we sit through church now where... That was a nice prayer. You <laughs> wouldn't say so, of course. Why don't we say, I'm enjoying the prayer. Why don't we really get into praying? Yeah. Mm. One is praying. That's not the point. We are praying. One has just chosen one. To, God has just chosen one to lead it. Let's get into prayer, people. Yeah. Amen. I you know why we don't say I'm anymore? Because we are not praying on our own enough. Wow. Mm. Oh, wow. Seriously, this is is serious stuff. If we were really in God and praying on our own, we'd be happy. Yeah, Lord, I agree with that. Lord, hear that one. Boy, boy, we need to be into this stuff. Hmm. The beginning of a statement also could start with amen, and that's what Jesus was doing. This this truly, truly is saying at the beginning of his statements. You know, the, the other words are, Verily, Remember that old word in the old Bible? Verily, verily, I was saying to you. Jesus constantly affirmed that what he was saying was utterly trustworthy. John 14 verse 15. Now this is really interesting. Because we move to the next dimension. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. Now we're talking about the spirit of truth. Verse 26, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. John chapter 15, still in the discourse. I am the true vine. He starts off the whole of chapter 15 with that. Are you connected to the vine? Verse 26 in chapter 15 of John. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. John chapter 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I go, do not go away, the Helper, the Spirit of Truth, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Verse 13, John 16. When the Spirit of Truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Is there a time in the assembly at any time where you say, Lord, reveal your truth to us? Holy Spirit, come among us. Be the spirit of truth among us right now. Do your miracle work. We need to be much more into pleading that God's gracious Holy Spirit might mightily lead us into truth. Because you read here, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. And do you know why so many churches throughout the world resist speaking about prophecy? Because they don't believe in that stuff. They don't know Jesus, therefore they don't know prophecy. They don't care to know about prophecy. They do not know the spirit of truth who is sent by Jesus. When I was growing up, we regularly had prophetic messages. In fact, You'd go home scared that your mother would be taken to glory and you'd be left behind. <laughs> and people used to laugh just like you did then. I'm not criticizing you laughing. That's exactly what they did. They laughed about it. It was the most serious thing in the world. They brought folks from all over the world to preach the second coming of Jesus. We need to be honoring them. John chapter 17. With this so I close. I won't ask you to put your hand up, but when's the last time you read John 17? Have you ever read it? Have you stood in a paddock and read it out loud? Mm -hmm. Has it cast you on your knees? This is God. Pray. Mm. The last 24 hours... How does John know it? Because he was the one who was always close to Jesus. He was on his his, his breast, and, and he was close to Jesus all the way. And somewhere between the upper room and the Kidron Valley, where they walked down and crossed the Kidron and up to Golgotha, to the Mount of Olives, of course, to start with. And I remember walking there and weeping. Because Jesus, somewhere on that way, he must have sat down on a rock and just prayed. What were the other disciples? I don't know, but John was listening. Verse 3, and this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God. Isn't that a beautiful prayer to end at the end of your life? And Jesus Christ whom we have sent. Verse 4, I glorified you on the earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Verse 8. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know the truth, that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. We're talking about the omnipotent God, verse 14 I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they're not of the world just as I'm not of the world go to verse 17 sanctify them in the truth your word is truth Lord help us to believe the Bible to read the Bible to read it and read it and read it, for in it is the truth about your grace, about the glory of your Son, mm. and the glory of your own person. Teach us, Lord, your truth through your word mm. every single day. In Jesus' name we pray.